Hello and welcome to My Life, My Journey podcast. The show that talks about mental health issues and the battles that I've faced. People say men need to speak up and so here I am and with this podcast to do just that. This podcast isn't to be used to act as a substitute for mental health counselling and I am not a therapist in any way, shape or form. I'm just here to give you ways in which I dealt with my mental health in hope that it may help you. Disclaimer. Some of the issues that you're about to hear within this episode are quite upsetting and is about child sex abuse and the effects of it. So I totally understand if this one is a very hard listen. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of my life my journey podcast the podcast that talks about mental health and all of the struggles that we all go through on a day-to-day basis and try to speak about it get men talking about their issues openly and honestly and if we all have a cry we have a cry it doesn't matter it's nothing to be ashamed of speak to people open out to anybody that you can and try and get that help that you need on today's show we have a very special guest all the way from santa barbara in california is Dana. Hello, Dana. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Love to have you here. We've also got Roger Reynolds in there as producer. Hello, Roger. Hello. You all right? Yes, I'm doing doing fine. (laughs) You had it on mute, didn't you, son? I did, I did, yeah. (laughs) Good day to both of you. Thank you. So, Dana, tell me a bit about yourself. I've obviously been listening to a podcast that you're on called Fear Me Out. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's called Fear Me Out, uh, but I'll start uh, with my full name. My name is Dana Saperstein. Um, I'm 68 years old. I lived in Santa Barbara for the last 50 years. I went to school here and uh, was one of the fortunate people to be able to stay here and start my family and my uh, my businesses out of a clinical psychologist. And uh, about a year or so ago, I started a podcast with a friend and um Super busy professional person, really enjoy uh, what I do for a living. I specialize in, in post-traumatic stress, working with um, adults who were, well, I work with people from maybe the age of 14 all the way to, you have to be able to make it up my stairs. Um, so anybody that can make it up the stairs is welcome, uh, you know, into my professional life. Um, so I do a lot of work uh, with trauma survivors and I do a lot of relationship counseling. Oh, brilliant. So you've got quite a lot of uh, credentials there, especially dealing with people with post-traumatic distress as well, which um, if anybody's listening to this before, you would have heard Roger's story um, concerning PTSD and complex PTSD, which we still need to, to delve into on his story. Um, so what, what turned you onto that particular you know, profession there, Dana? Well, I think that um, anybody that's honest about uh, why they chose to become uh, a mental health professional, uh, initially it's because of their own, uh, maybe uh, sketchy mental health. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I laugh when I say that, but everybody I know that's a, a therapist has had a pretty difficult background. Um, I, uh, was born in Canada actually. Um, and for the first four and a half years of my life, I lived in Canada. Um, unfortunately when I was about four and a half years old, I, uh, went into the hospital to have surgery, and I was actually sexually abused by uh, an orderly in the hospital. 
And um, he told me that if I told anybody that he would uh, that he would kill me. And when they will, he wheeled me into the surgical suite at that next morning. And when they were putting me under anesthesia, um, I thought they were killing me. So I remember very distinctly screaming, I won't tell, I won't tell. And then uh, for the next 32 years of my life, I blocked out that memory of being sexually abused. So uh, I am one of those people that had a repressed memory that didn't show up until probably 35 years of age. Um, I don't know how much more you want me to talk about my childhood, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that uh, that might be useful for me to yeah. describe. I'm just, I'm, if I'm being honest with you, I know the listeners can't see me, but I imagine Roger is as well. I'm, I'm really shocked with that news that you've just come out with. You know, I don't really feel like I have anything to hide as a, a person anymore. I can speak about the abuse and I have no emotional reaction to it because I've done so much uh, therapy work on resolving that issue. Uh, pretty much, uh, you know, I spent maybe at least a decade uh, in my 20s in really deep uh, psychotherapy and that really helped them uh, uh, a huge amount because I have, that's just the beginning of the trauma that I suffered. Uh, in the course of my childhood, I'm just lost for words. Four and a half years old for that to happen to you, you know, a defenseless, defenseless little child, and you're in there for an operation. What was the operation for? Uh, I was born with a with a hernia, and so they just had to correct the uh, uh, the hernia. But back in those days, your parents were not allowed to stay in the hospital with you, so right. uh, it was really easy for predators to take advantage of children, take advantage of children in those environments. So, um, and who was this person? Was it an actual like doctor that had done this, or was it just an outsider that just happened? No, to it was. A, it's what we call here in the United States an orderly. He's somebody that uh, uh, you know just takes care of your basic needs. He was the one that wheeled me on the gurney into the operating room, yeah. um, that sort of thing. Um, so, like a caretaker so, kind of thing of the hospital. I'm sorry. Did you say like a caretaker type of person in the hospital? Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't a doctor. He was just, you know, one of the medical personnel. And I understand now that that happens and used to happen all the time. Actually, uh, I've met a fair number of people that have had similar experiences in the hospital because it's a place where children are are quite vulnerable. Yeah, but it's the last place as a parent that you well, you, you almost sort of feel like you, your children are safe in a hospital. If that means it was helps. Yeah. Um, did you did you ever tell mom and dad about that situation, or did you have to keep it a secret and not tell well, anybody? I, I didn't remember it until I was in my thirties. It completely was blocked out of my uh, memory oh. in any way, and I was actually um, in therapy for probably a decade, and it never came up in my wow. therapy at all because I did not have any of the typical symptoms that a person would have that has been sexually abused. I had all kinds of other abuse that I had to come to terms with, but it, but the, the concept of sexual abuse never came up, um, in the, in the therapy that I had. It's, it started when my daughter was four years old and her little body started sort of triggering, uh, nightmares inside of me. Um, and I was having the same nightmare night after night where I'd be, uh, being chased around a green tiled room with somebody with a syringe trying to trying to get me, and I couldn't figure out what was going on because I figured I had already taken care of everything uh, in a psychotherapy setting that I needed to, 
So I actually went back to see my mentor and he said he had no idea how to help me. Um, and that's when I turned uh, toward learning hypnosis. And um, through a series of events, I actually was able to remember what happened and uh, come to terms with it. Oh, do you? And I did talk to my parents about it, but they, I'm not sure if they believe me or not, to tell you the truth. Um, I didn't really need their recognition in order to heal because yeah. I, I, I trust what my body tells me, which I think is really important for people to uh, pay attention to what, what your intuition, what your body has to tell you. Um, and I can't imagine why anybody would want to make something like that up anyway. No, exactly. I think a lot of the time parents, although although you feel like the parents perhaps didn't believe you, deep down it was perhaps the parents didn't want to admit it to themselves as well because of how horrible that, that kind of thing is to happen to one of their, their own babies kind of thing. So yeah. Maybe they, they wanted to just, you know, it's not real because they didn't want to admit to the truth of it, if that makes any sense, because it might be too hard for them, maybe. Well, I can't tell you how many parents that I've uh, worked with who don't want to believe what happened to their children because, you know, they're good people and they don't necessarily want to believe that they could have allowed something like that to happen. Yeah. But, um, I mean, statistically, I think about 7 out of 10 women have something sexual happen to them as children, and that's, um, you know, ranging from uh, fondling to rape. And for men, it's probably about 6 out of 10, and I think that's an underreported statistic. It perhaps is, because men, like we already know, men men are a bit scared as well, and they? they don't really like to to get vulnerable in situations like that and, and open up about situations in case they get mocked or whatever. So, Right. But four and a half if years I could, old... If- this, if I could jump in for just a minute, Dana, I have, I appreciate your open and honesty and it is good that we talk about this and it's, it's, I thank you and commend you for getting to the point where you can talk openly and honestly and without shame and without being dysregulated or upset by it. You mentioned a subject that I would like to hear you talk about in yourself being a professional in psychology. Um, <clears throat> just, a month ago or a little over, I was in a, a Facebook group about complex PTSD where I've, I've been a member for a number of years. And somebody who said they had psychology training started to dismiss, attack, minimize recovered memories. Right. And I knew like, like in the nineties, this was debated. I'm, I'm thinking we're 30 years past this. How can someone who's claiming credentials still be doing this. And I did a little bit of research. I like to research. I don't argue with people as much as I'm like, <clears throat> if, if I'll just go pull credible articles to just do it. And, and so in my research from a month and a half ago, I found that in the United States, for people who don't know, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which is, is the accepted book for for insurance companies and the health profession, which I just, I turned to that because it's a credible, so it's considered a credible source, but you're also a credible source. And I found that now, and I just pulled it up again to find out that in this book, this certified credentialed book for diagnosing, that the new term for this, for recovered memories or repressed memories is dissociative amnesia. And I wondered if you would talk, because I am certain there are people out there 
with repressed memories or who are, have recovered or remember their repressed memories who are likely still questioning themselves or being dismissed or minimized by friends, family, and professionals. So I wondered if you could talk about that some. Oh, you know, Roger, it happens, it happens all the time. It's quite sad um, because, I mean, who wants to believe that this sort of thing could happen? But I will tell you that in my practice, I have worked with people that have been sexually abused by mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, teachers, clergy. Uh, what am I missing? Um, just about any common uh, person that you might know. You know, there's a myth that sexual abuse happens usually by strangers, and that's actually not true. It's more likely to happen by somebody that uh, um, that your family is connected to than anybody else. And um, you're right, during the 90s, there was huge controversy about uh, repressed memory because there were some people that were using it legally in order to try to get custody of children and so on and so forth. And so um, it got it got a really bad reputation because of the fact that some people used it as a weapon in a legal situation in order to, um, you know, get custody of a child, that sort of thing. I, I just, I, I just can't believe how, how do human beings grow into that? You, you know what I mean? How, how do, how do they, it, my mind boggles. I'll be honest with you, Dana, for me, it's so alien to to hear anything like because I've got three little babies myself and if anyone was to hurt a hair on their head that will be perhaps the final time I see civilization because I will be doing a lot of time in Her Majesty's pleasure well her his his Majesty now we've got a king we? but I'll be in prison for a long long time for my children if that ever happens to, to my kids um it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking but yeah but fair play to you for being so open and honest about that and letting us know that story because you didn't have to. Uh, and I appreciate that you did. Uh, are, are you ready? A great question from Roger as well. Are you ready to hear some more? Because that's just the beginning. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so look, at the end of the day, even if it's hard to listen to, it needs to be spoken to hopefully help some of the listeners if they've gone through anything like this to be a bit more courageous, like yourself, and to open up and say, you know what, this happened, and we need to get this sorted. So well, I, I'm all for it. You know, Jermaine, I'll be really honest with you. The reason or one of the reasons I started my podcast is because, you know, I can only see a certain number of people in my professional world. And, um, you know, hopefully those people help other people. But I wanted to um, show what it would look like for, well, when I started with my friend, uh, he's in his uh, 50s and I'm in my 60s. We wanted to show what old men look like being honest about uh, real things. So um, I figured that if I'm looking for other people, to be honest, i got to start by showing what that looks like. Um, and I don't have any trouble actually talking about anything and everything because uh, I think the worst thing that, that you can go through life with is secrets. Um, because I, I think that secrets end up turning into symptoms. And um, I see so many people that are de- you know debilitated by anxiety and depression and you know, bad relationships and all sorts of other things. And I am not somebody who focuses on symptoms when I'm working with someone because I believe that there's an underlying, uh, there are underlying issues that create symptoms. And so if you're just focusing on symptoms, um, yeah, you can help people, but you're never really getting down to what is ailing somebody deep down inside. So I don't try to pathologize people. I don't diagnose people. 
I don't have a treatment plan for anyone in a formal sense because uh, most people come to see me, they already feel bad about themselves. So why would I agree with them and tell them there's something wrong with them? Yeah. Uh, and especially because they're really, I mean, if, if you have a, uh, like a mental illness like schizophrenia or being bipolar, then of course you have to, uh, you know, take that seriously. But, you know, that's a small uh, population. Generally, most of us have a lot of symptoms based on just trying to cope with all of the things that happened to us as children and with equal measure, all of the things that didn't happen for us. Uh, because I think that neglect can cause as much harm as abuse. You're, you're touching on something there that's making me look outside the box with what you're saying there. And it's almost like when people say you are what you put in. So if you have all these things, maybe, maybe you've, I think you've just hit the nail on the head. And I'm trying to work out the worst to say, but when people have got symptoms, it's a reaction, isn't it? The opposite reaction to what originally happened to them in the first place. For me, my, my childhood growing up in that domesticated violence, abuse and, and screams and shouts all the time. My mum, my dad fighting, my dad fighting my mother. Maybe that's starting to come out now because I, I was, I was fine. I was absolutely fine growing up and it weren't until 2017. So, you know, I forget what age I was, but I was around my fir- early thirties when it come out and then right. I started to feel worthless. And now I'm a dad. Am I doing a good job? But I always had my dad in the back of my thoughts. Am I turning into my dad? Of course right. I'm not, but your mind is very strong and can manipulate you to, to react in certain ways. And what you're saying there is with symptoms, Instead of agreeing with them, you said, look, there's actually an issue there. You've got this symptom because of A. You've got that issue because of B. And all those things that happen throughout your life are what, the, what, what you are today. And the way to face it is by speaking openly and honest. And that's what I did with this podcast. I, I opened up about my depression, how it happened, what I'd done. And I speak quite, quite openly about my dad, the way he was. I've not gone too much into it because some of it's still hard to, to speak about. Right. But then again, I've never had counseling. I've never had that help. I've just sort of, like yourself, just sort of blocked it out and just got on with my life kind of thing. So I, I think yeah. a lot of people will now listen to that and hopefully sympathize a little bit more with people with mental health issues to say, look, there's actually a reason that they're like well, that. I, you know, Jermaine, I look at symptoms as a form of communication. That yes. it's your body's way of telling me what the deeper issues are that you're struggling with. Um, and I do know that that's an unusual way of approaching my profession because I see a fair number of people that have had therapy with other uh, practitioners. And a lot of times people will say to me, how come nobody's ever asked me about this before? How come nobody's ever sort of described this in a way where, where they're not agreeing that I should hate myself and feel bad about myself because of all the symptoms I have? Um, so, you know, I, I just learned a long time ago through my own therapy and um, in working with people that um, it's easy to see what's lovable inside of a person. And if you focus on that and help people recognize what they bring to the table rather than uh, what their symptoms might be, it helps people have the courage to face the trauma that might be creating the symptoms in the first place. So I'm going to flip it a little bit here. So we're talking about people that are the victims Right. Do we have, do, well, have you ever had a perpetrator come in asking for help because he can't stop himself causing or herself can't stop themselves from 
from doing these things to their their friends, their family, their, their peers. Um, I'm just wondering, have they ever come in to admit, look, I'm this and I do this and to try and stop them from carrying it on? So it, instead of the victim, the perpetrator, the person right. creating all this mess. Uh, you know, Jermaine, I'm not a, I do not specialize in working with perpetrators. I think it takes a, uh, an incredibly patient, uh, accepting, not that I'm not accepting, but it's really hard for me to, um, uh, to work with somebody who's a perpetrator. I, I did do it once when I met a woman who came in and was trying to figure out how to redeem her relationship with her two daughters that she viciously abused physically and um, as children. And under those circumstances, I agreed to work with her, but only because her motivation was uh, not to make excuses or to, you know, blame the world, but to take responsibility for what she did and to try to figure out some way of mending her relationship with her estranged children. Um, one time uh, in working with a woman who was horribly sexually abused by her father, um, after she was in therapy for a few years, she invited her father to come here to California. He lived in uh, on the East Coast. And he actually came here on his hands and knees begging for her forgiveness. Um, wow. But generally speaking, I don't, I don't work with perpetrators. Yeah, no, it was literally just a shot out of the door. I just thought, is there a way we can – because sometimes listeners, they might, I don't want people to think, oh, this is all one way. This is all one-sided. And I, and I think about the person that's doing it because obviously they need help as well. I don't know if you remember the – I think it's a Stephen King film, Misery. Right. And she's holding this, this bloke, this author in bed and she, she hurts him quite right. badly. And it's people like that as well that intrigue me. What, what causes them to abuse these people like that? Because it's ruining their lives, so to speak. So a lot of the time I will say on this podcast as well, if you are struggling with, with coping with the person that you're with and you're, and if you can't get control, you take it out in anger. Right. Because you can't get a hold of the situation. And then you, instead of dealing with it, talking, sitting down, you know, communicating and negotiating, some people can't negotiate or talk. They end up picking up, I don't know, an ashtray or they, 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 they drive a car into you or they hit you behind closed doors. And I've, I've always wondered about those people and you being in the job that you're doing. I didn't know if that was something that's ever come in, but like you said, there with a the father begging on his hands and knees. I would be, I mean, how did you feel about that, Dad? Did you want to hit him <laughs> from, from well, here? I, mean, I treated him with respect because he took responsibility. Yeah. Um, and to answer your question, this man grew up in a Greek family with like 16 or 17 other siblings, and he was pretty much sexually abused by all of them. So um, he had reason, not an excuse, but reason uh, uh, you know, to be an abuser, because I will say to you that most people that abuse other people have been abused themselves. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, yeah. It's not something that people invent. Now, the only exception to that is if you have what I call a personality disorder, which is someone like a narcissist or a sociopath or um, someone like that who uh, is broken in a very um, profound way. Because a lot of people that have personality disorders, um, 
unfortunately, uh, really, really hurt almost everybody they come in contact with. Um, I worked with a family once where an uh, older brother started sexually uh, abusing his two-year-old and four-year-old uh, siblings. And this went on for probably four or five years before the two younger had the courage to tell their dad what was happening. And I will say that this young man who was a, the abuser, he was a sociopath, without a doubt. He had no remorse. He had. He always wondered why they were making such – because I met these people in their 40s. How he was always wondering why they would make such a big deal about it. It happened when they were kids. And the description I got for the younger kids was that he was probably one of the most sadistic uh, sexual abusers that I'd ever met. And he was like 12 to 14 years old. And, I, and I'm not talking about, again, poor families. Um, uh, Santa Barbara is an incredibly wealthy community. And um, a lot of people here have more money than God, if you don't mind my putting it in those terms. Yeah. Uh, and most of the people that I see are, are uh, in the upper middle to stratospheric uh, levels of financial um, abundance. Yeah, like the, the rich circles, if you like. It's, I mean, you picked up on it there. And there is a saying, isn't there? Hurt people hurt people. That's right. I, I do understand that. I, I mean, especially for that father. So you say he was a sibling of what, 16 to 17 different different brothers and sisters in his family that were constantly doing For him then, it was perhaps the norm, even though it's not the norm in, in civilization. And it doesn't warrant what he's done. Um, but for him to beg and plead and... It's, I don't know, it's just the mind boggles with that type of thing. I, I think it, because, because I'm a dad, I, I, I just always think, or even as a human being, I'm just like, I, I, no means no. No means no. You know, and if you've got well, a problem well, like that, just go to the bathroom and sort it out yourself. You don't have to hurt anybody in the process. Just sort yourself out kind of thing. You, you know, Jermaine, I will tell you that um, anytime I talk about perpetrators, I may be able to provide you with an explanation but it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse, no. Because most people do have control over their behavior, and even if they lose it in the moment, uh, I would say, generally speaking, you can control yourself unless you believe that the people that you're hurting deserve it. Yes. I think Roger picked up on that last week with the personal um, personality disorder, where right. a lot of times people don't think that they're wrong. It's the rest of the world. Yes. Because we've got like a actually, warped reality. Yes. Yeah, so no, that's, that's so weird. So going back then, so when you went to therapy, what age was you when you decided to, to, to go to your therapist and get the help that you needed? Well, do you mind if I tell you just a bit more of what I had to deal with before I, or before I got into therapy? Because it'll help, it'll help people understand um, sort of a complicated way that some people are brought up. Yeah, um, yeah no, no, of course, of course. After I was uh, abused, my family um, had to flee Canada because my father was going to be sent to jail. Um, he was a uh, not a person with a strong moral fiber. He grew up uh, in an incredibly anti-Semitic part of Canada, and he had to quit school as a 14-year-old. And so he was raised in abject poverty, as was my mom. And so he never really developed a... Uh, strong conscience about the way he lived in the world. He was a fairly kind-hearted guy, but he didn't really think that 
breaking the law was a problem. So when I was just about five, we, we fled Canada and went to Europe, actually. I went to London and, and um, spent a bit of time there. And then we went to Italy. And then we went to Israel for a short period of time. But my dad couldn't learn how to speak Hebrew. So uh, we ended up actually in Brazil, amazingly enough, of all places. Um, and Brazil was a very interesting place in 1959. It was pretty wild. Um, and we lived there for almost a year. And I remember one morning waking up and there were, there were actually, actually where there was a political uh, upheaval while we were there. And so I remember looking out and watching soldiers killing people in the streets as a five-year-old. And, and I was just stunned at the craziness that I was watching. My family needed to flee Brazil at the time because as uh, Americans or Canadians, we weren't welcome there. So that's when I ended up in California um, because of the violence and the instability of that country at the time. So I remember um, when I was in like first grade writing a story about what I saw and the teacher didn't believe me. She said, you know, she sent a note home to my parents saying, there's really something wrong with your son. He has an overactive uh, imagination because she thought it was making all of the, uh, the, you know, the death that I saw as a five-year-old. She thought it was making the whole thing up to, because it was too inconceivable to her uh, to imagine that, um, you know, a little kid like me could have witnessed something like that. Yeah, a lot of the time people don't realize that it's not and always then, green and roses, is it? Uh, well, unfortunately, what, what all of this did to me, the sexual abuse and the violence, it turned me into a bully. And when I look back, I feel really badly about the way that I behaved as a child because um, for some weird reason, I lived in a very middle-class neighborhood, but all the kids fought with each other all the time. So um, even though we were all middle-class, you know, sort of normal kids, violence was a huge part of our daily life we just it's a you know beat the crap out of each other and um it wasn't until i got to junior high that i realized that um i was hurting people when i was hitting them mm-hmm. um and i made a vow one day when i was sitting on my bed and my hand was probably swollen the size of a grapefruit because i hit somebody so hard that i was never going to do that again and luckily i've never been in a fight since then but unfortunately the only alternative at that time uh was uh drugs so I started smoking pot, and I think that for the next, boy, all the way until I was about 17 or 18, there wasn't a single day that didn't go by that I wasn't completely high from the time I woke up till I went to sleep at night, which was pretty common in Los Angeles during uh, the mid to late 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Um, somebody turned on a faucet and drugs just poured in, and all of us, little knucklehead kids didn't know any better and so <laughs> it was kind of a free-for-all during that period of time a little bit um, like the next fad isn't it yeah kids get so into, yeah i got really lucky because my parents were quite liberal in a certain way and therapy just got started in the early 70s and they went to see a therapist because they couldn't stand each other uh and they came home one day and said to me uh you know you might want to go talk to this guy uh, because you don't seem like the happiest person in the world. And I was not a very happy person. I was chronically depressed. I was uh, high all the time and just terrified of uh, getting close to anybody. Um, and it was really hard. I was super shy. So it was hard with uh, um, 
you know, it was hard to have a girlfriend, any of that stuff. Um, the only, uh, again, the only option I had at the time was, was smoking uh, pot and, and occasionally hallucinogenics. Um, but mostly I, I was just high and there, there, there weren't really any other alternatives for kids then. I mean, my, my fourth grade teacher brought me to the principal's office and said, Hey, you got to get this guy to stop fighting. And the, you know, the principal said to me, um, you know, why are you doing this? Maybe you should go to Vietnam. And I thought to myself, I'm like 11 years old or 10. And I look at around, what's Vietnam? I, you know, why do you want me to go there? Yeah. <laughs> so there, there really wasn't any, there was no help for kids back in those days at all that were uh, struggling like me. Just a different time, isn't it? Um, but that's when my therapy started. And, um, uh, and it, it was a very positive experience. I was really lucky. Um, when I graduated high school, I moved to San Diego to surf because I'm, I used to be a very active surfer and, uh, actually quit school for a while and moved to Hawaii. Uh, and that's actually where I met my wife at, uh, in 1976. I met her on the beach in Maui, which was very sweet. Ah, Maui. Yes, I yeah. know about Maui. So yes, we've been, <laughs> we've been together for almost 50 years now and she deserves a medal for that. Well, congratulations. And, yeah. Um, but really, when I when I left Hawaii and moved to Santa Barbara to finish going to school, that's when I found my mentor, my ther- the person that uh, I did the most uh, effective psychotherapy with. I saw him for years and years, a couple times a week. It was luckily that my parents were kind enough to pay for the treatment because they knew I needed help. Yeah. And this particular man said to me one day, "You know, if you ever decide to be a therapist." Uh, you have what it takes, and I would love to help you. So that's how it happened. Um, he helped me get into the graduate school that I went to and uh, was on my dissertation committee, and um, it was very sweet. It was really lovely. I've had really good luck with male mentors uh, in the course of my life, and I look at that as sort of uh, an amazing kind of miraculous thing that's taken place. So, yeah, you've had quite – in all, in all fairness, you've, it seems like you've had, although you've had some bad times in their life, it seems like you've also had a great little childhood as well, going to all these different places. I know you've seen some terrible things, like you said, in Brazil and stuff like that, with all the killings that were happening at such a young age. But the way you've turned out, meeting your wife at Maui as well, doing surfing uh, and stuff like that, you've actually turned your life around there. So that therapist obviously had a, a, a massive impact on you. So I would say to anybody listening to this, Therapy is the way. Get yourself that therapy that you need. Um, oh, I would say without question, but I will, again, qualify that statement with it depends on who you go to see, Jermaine, because, um, boy, there's a lot of really terrible therapists in the world, and I'm really, you know, maybe I'm arrogant, but uh, I think a lot of people go in to become therapists because of their own problems, and they never get the proper help they need, so yeah. they bring their problems into uh, their professional practice, I would say probably half the people that become therapists have personality disorders and they like the admiration and attention they get from their patients. And I know I'm speaking negatively, but uh, you've got to be really careful who you see. It's really important. I was going to say, I'm going to echo that. The, the person you see, I've always said, if why would you go to somebody who's never suffered? Because they're not truly going to understand what you've been through. Anyone can learn something on paper, do the theory. But what about right. the practical? And what you just said there is brilliant because you've you've got your classroom 
people or you've got your people that's actually done it in real day-to-day life, lived through it, they're going to be the best people to speak to and seek advice from. And so, so that was going to be the next question, really, on the therapist. What do people look out for? What is there any is there an easy way of identifying a good therapist or a bad therapist? Well, um, if I can be a little bit self-promoting, if you go to my podcast, the Fear Me Out podcast, I've done, uh, let's see, probably three or four episodes. The first one being on how do you find a good therapist? And then I have interviewed, um, boy, four or five mental health practitioners that I admire and respect. And um, there's a ton of information on my podcast about how you find a good therapist, what to look for, what to avoid, uh, and then examples of me interviewing people and, and having them speak about their, uh, you know, the way that they practice. Because I am a very biased person in terms of what I believe works. And uh, as I said before, I don't really believe in pathologizing people. That's not to say that occasionally I do refer people for medicine if it's necessary. But, you know, if you don't like yourself, which, you know, is the case for a lot of people, and you think that there's something wrong with you, and you come to see me, I don't want to agree with you because I don't. I think that um, that your symptoms are not a reflection of who you are as a person. They're, it's your body's way of communicating to you what you have not come to terms with. And people say to me sometimes, well, I was never really traumatized and that sort of thing. And um, my response is, yeah, but what about emotional neglect? Yeah. Right. If you want to hurt somebody like to the deepest level of their existence, then treat them like they don't matter, especially if you're a little kid. So I see a lot of people that have been dismissed and not properly loved and uh, made to made to sort of become a member of the family that's not exactly in tune with who they are as a person. And and that hurts as much as overt abuse. And so I try to help people understand that they're not crazy, number one. And number two, there's a reason why they're suffering. And a lot of it has to do with feeling lonely and disenfranchised and like there's something wrong with you and that, you know, people don't like you and so on and so forth. And really it's mostly because of the way you feel about yourself. So if you can shift the focus away from, the world being your problem and take responsibility for, you know, healing yourself as deeply as you're courageous enough to go. That usually makes a huge difference in people's lives. And I really believe that that's why I'm as busy as I am uh, is because people um, appreciate that approach because they've been so pathologized in the past or made to feel bad about themselves. And, um, you know, if you're the kind of therapy therapist that diagnoses people and uh, comes up with a treatment plan. If the treatment plan doesn't work, it's not the therapist's fault. It's the client's fault, right? Because they didn't follow the recipe. And I really disagree with that notion. I think that um, the most important thing you can do as a therapist is really meet the person where they are, not to have them become the person that you think that they should be. Well, no, because not all caps fit, do they? Oh, but the booklet says, oh, I must do this to this person because he's depressed. Let's prescribe him that because that works. Right. Everybody's built differently. Everybody's built differently. And I've been to places before. And a lot of the time you're speaking to these professionals and they do dismiss you. I mean, I went into my doctors not so long ago and they are literally sat on Google typing in my symptoms to find out what's wrong. Right. And that hurt. 
because I thought you've gone through the whole system of university, getting your degrees, and you're telling me something that I could have done at home and self-diagnosed myself. I am not a professional. I'm asking for your help. Right. I'm hoping that you're going to work with me. My individuality, I'm not like Tom, Dick, or Harry over there. I'm me, and I've got my problem, and my problem is going to be different to his. He may have it more severe, more chronic. This guy may not. So there's different... There's different menus, so to speak, I believe, for people. There's different ways of treating people. How far gone are they? Is it just a cold? <laughs> you know, right. but, but that's what I'm saying. So what you're saying there to me makes me wish we had one of you near me, someone oh, who can right. identify our actual problem instead of just passing us off. Because a lot of the time, you see a lot of these doctors, clinicians, and, and whatever in the UK – a lot of the time, they're just there for the paycheck. There's actually no real care there for the patient. And for what you're, the way you're coming across to me now is that your purpose is more not based on what you're getting paid. It's more, I want to try and help this person leave that room a little bit better. I and mean, it takes it takes time to heal. Right. Rather than you just passing them back out. Yeah, all right, mate. Yeah, that's that. Give you that prescription. See, you're next one in. You know what I mean? Like a revolving door thing. It seems like you're... You've got a lot of empathy, and, and I appreciate that. Oh, you're very kind. I will tell you that I, when I was in my 30s, it was a very um, crucial time in my development as a person, uh, first of all, because I was able to um, understand what happened to me that really affected my life on a very deep level that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and then, um, and I hope that this is not uncomfortable for people, I am not a religious person. Um, I was brought up to be Jewish and I hated every moment of it because I wanted to play baseball, not go to temple. And I didn't understand why uh, I had to replace baseball with temple. And then when I discovered surfing, that made it even worse. So um, <laughs> again, when I was in my 30s, I had a, a series of experiences that um, really changed my spiritual sort of connection to the world, but it was in an a-religious way. Um, and uh, I had a dream one night before I went to sleep, feeling very uh, uncertain about the notion of God and what God might be for me. Uh, and I had the most incredible dream that night that sort of changed my life. Um, I was living at the house that I, in the dream, I was living at the house that I lived in in high school, but I was in my 30s and I hadn't lived in that house forever. Anyway, there was a knock at the door. I opened the door and God was standing there in the form of a human being, but only so that we could have a conversation because um, I don't believe that God is a person or, or has any gender. Anyway, I said, okay, God, you know, what are you doing here? Well, why are you knocking on my door? And God said, well, I came to answer your questions so that you can uh, understand what my role in your life is. And I said, okay, you know, that sounds wonderful. So the first thing that God said to me in the dream was that, if I ever wanted to feel love, all I had to do was uh, open my heart to uh, God's existence. And um, and that God never turns away from people, but people do turn away from God. And if you ever want to feel that feeling of love and connection, all you got to do is open your heart to me. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and then I said, well, is there anything else? And God said, yes, forgiveness is a huge issue for people. And so part of my role in your life is to help you forgive yourself for the people that you've hurt uh, and to help you forgive the people that have hurt you and also to forgive yourself for the way that you've treated yourself over the course of your lifetime. And I thought, wow, that is really very sweet. 
uh, anything else. And God said, yeah, there's one more thing. Uh, I'm here to help you in your work because you've decided to devote yourself to the, uh, uh, to be of service to other people. And so if you're willing to sort of, uh, uh, not surrender in a bad way, but connect with me, I'll give you everything you need in order to help anybody that walks into your life, whether it's on a personal or professional level. And I thought, wow, that is really amazing. And so, um, um, I said, can you just wait here a second? I want you to meet my wife. So I'm running around the house calling my wife. She comes to the door and God's not there anymore. And I realized that's not my job to introduce my wife to God. That's her, her journey. Uh, and then all of a sudden I heard music playing inside my head and I've never heard music like this before or anywhere in the world. And I thought to myself, well, what the heck is this? And the message I got was that this is what the angels sound like when they're singing in heaven. So I can only tell you that after that dream, it completely changed my life on a very personal and professional level because I realized that I was not alone in being able to help the people that came to me. So I didn't need to be afraid, no matter how much a person's, how much of pain the person brought into my life. And so I am able to sit with people, uh, as I've said before, with un- that have had unspeakable things happen to them. And it doesn't, it doesn't take me down, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because it's a I powerful feel like dream, that. I'm being helped helping other people. And it was an amazing dream. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, since then, I've had all kinds of really uh, remarkable experiences that have continually reinforced that my faith is well-placed. Um, I'm not sure if it's important to mention any of those things, but I do approach what I do with a very spiritual sort of intuitive uh, way of working with people because I do believe that um, your intuition is God's voice inside of you and that it should be treated with kind of sacred devotion. Uh, because a lot of people say to me, well, I pray and I never get an answer. And my response is, well, do, do you have an intuition? And people say, yeah, but I don't always trust it because I, you know, I can't tell the difference between what I'm afraid and whether it's really intuition. So part of what I try to help people do is to recognize the difference between uh, what they feel on a fearful level in their body and what they feel on a knowing level. I hope I'm making sense with what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, totally making sense. I mean, I'm all for people with, with their own beliefs and stuff. I mean, I, I always, I want to believe. But I find it hard to believe with what I see around me, if that makes any sense. Right. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. the world is a very scary place. But it is. And belief and knowing are totally two different things as well. Um, but, yeah, I've got friends that believe in God, that go to church and stuff like that. I've – the only time I oh, – I've done it a few times in the car where I say, please, God, come on, why you keep – you know, giving me this, this bad stuff. Why am I always falling over? Why am I always here? Why am, why can't I move further ahead in life? What do you keep holding me back for? I've been good. I never skived. I never did drugs. I never drank beer when I was a kid. I went to school every day. I've never hurt anybody. I've done everything the legitimate way. And yet some people in my life are not legitimate. They are very dodgy people. And they've got the latest cars, the big houses. They've got the, 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 the holidays abroad three times a year. They've got a mortgage. And it's like, well, Mr. Nice Guy here is getting nothing. Maybe I need to be Mr. Bad Guy. <laughs> and that's what it does to you over time. It does. It starts to manipulate your, your, your mind. I really hope you don't come to that conclusion because I think one of the biggest myths that we are taught as children is that God has 
some kind of control. Yeah. And I don't believe that God has any control at all, only influence. Yes. And uh, I think that if you're open to the influence, it can be a, uh, it can help you in your darkest times and it can also help you create very joyful uh, experiences. But I don't believe that God has any control over anyone or anything. And, and uh, I understand that the world is a really scary place and that there's a lot of really bad people that have a lot of abundance, but I don't think that has anything to do with, uh, uh, with the spiritual world. And again, I am not, again, I'm not a Christian or a Jew or any, I don't ascribe to any organized religion because they just don't, they don't work for me. But it, do you mind if I give you an example or two of how it's worked in my life? Yeah, uh, yeah of course. Yeah, um, I'm open, Dana. You, you know, you, you've got the floor. Okay. Um, I will say that well, I'll give you an example. One January when I was uh, 45 years old, uh, a very active surfer, I went to go surfing with my friends, but they hadn't, hadn't arrived at the beach yet. And um, I'm standing looking at the waves, and they're absolutely stunningly perfect, which is like, uh, that's like free heroin, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm, I'm super anxious to get on my wetsuit and jump in the water. And I hear this voice in my head, not whispering, but screaming, don't go in the water by yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, why not? The waves are perfect. All, my friends will be here soon. Uh, I don't see what the problem would be. But I swear to you, I, it was like somebody was screaming at me at the top of their lungs, don't go in the water by yourself. So, you know, after being hammered for about, I don't know, five minutes, I gave in and said, okay, I'll wait for my friends. Well, we all paddled out in the water together. And within 10 minutes, I had what would have been a fatal heart attack in the water while I was surfing. Oh. And the only reason I'm alive is because my friends were able to save my life. And if they weren't there, I would have been dead on the beach. That is crazy. Yeah, that's a pretty wild story. That is crazy. So that's... I've got one very similar. Okay. But I don't know if it was, it's, I don't know if it's a coincidence. So me and my partner at this, well, I'm still with my partner now. I've been together now nearly 16 years with three kids, a dog, three guinea pigs later. But there was one night where we was arguing quite a lot and it was under the, it was more like she didn't think I loved her. And I do, I love my, I love my missus and my kids very much. And I went outside for a cigarette and I was smoking. I was looking up at the sky and I says, God, can you please show my partner how much she means to me? Can you please do something? And this is God's honest truth. <laughs> there we go. God's honest truth. I went back upstairs to the bedroom and we had an earthquake within seconds of me saying that. And I said, <laughs> honest to God, this is so honest, right? And I looked at, I looked at my Mrs. K. I says, there you go. There's your message. I'm going to well for you tonight. <laughs> That's right. I gotta, I gotta shake the earth in order for you to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. That that that's actually true. Yeah, yeah. My Mrs. K, she if she was on it now. She'll tell you. Yeah, the earth moved. Um, and it it was so. For me, it was a coincidence. It wasn't. I don't know if there was any more into right. it. But I looked up and says, "God, please, would you tell this woman how much I love her?" And then I literally got from the downstairs backyard upstairs to the bedroom, and then the whole the whole house shook. Wow. <laughs> So, yeah, I made the earth move for, for my missus that night. <laughs> well, let me give you one more quick uh, yeah. example that's like a couple months old, and then we can go on to other matters. I, I had a cat for about 10 years, and he was very ill, and I was afraid to put him to sleep because I didn't want to do it prematurely, but I also didn't want him to suffer. So 
I went for a walk that morning in the park that I walk in all the time. And I was talking to God, which I do a lot. And I said, God, I need some help because I need to know when it's time. The cat's name was Ben. When it's time to put Ben uh, down. And I was listening to music. I was listening to Sting at the moment. And the song that was playing in my head was Free Free, Set Them Free. And then I looked down and I swear to you, a chalk drawing in the park on the cement had a clock on it. And on top of it, it said, it's time. So how does that happen? <laughs> That's a sign, isn't it? Straight there in front of your face. And Well, and I was able to come home and say to my wife, you know, I'm terrified, but I also understand that it's time because I got a message that it was time. And so I was able to kind of step away from the how afraid I was and recognize yeah. that even how much more of a sign can you get than that? <laughs> and, you know, even though it broke my heart that I would lose my cat, at least I knew that that it was okay. And I'm just giving you those examples because I think that if you're open and you're asking, and it doesn't have to be complicated, that that's how it can work if you're open to the idea that it, it you don't have to do anything other than have a conversation. Exactly. Try to yeah. Really simple. No, that's. I must admit, on those sort of songs, yeah, I would, I would definitely say there it is. There's there's the message, and and you know, Ben's in a better place as well. You know no longer suffering and you got and you hopefully walked away from that as well feeling a little bit more at ease as well from seeing that sign so definitely well, like an thing, when i surf people would say to me all the time how come you get so many really good waves compared to the rest of us and i never want to tell anybody my secret but when i was sitting in the water i would be having a conversation okay god i'm ready for the next one i'm ready for that <laughs> <laughs> you know i could be full of baloney but it just seems to work if your faith is well-placed and you don't make it complicated, and I'm yes. not trying to put down organized religion. It's just that, you know, back in the old days, if somebody said, what's your religion? I would say, I'm an antagonist. I'm not an atheist, so I'm not agnostic, but I'm antagonistic because of my, uh, <laughs> because I was forced to participate against my will. But <laughs> that's not the way it is anymore. I don't need religion necessarily, and I'm not trying to put it down, but I think it can be as simple as you're willing to allow it to be. And I know we're getting a little bit off topic in terms of my professional life, but it does affect my professional life in a very profound way. No, no, because it's, it's nice stories as well I'm listening to. I mean, I've got a friend, Aaron, who's just the same. He, everything he touches turns to gold. You know, he's, a, he's another friend of mine, truck driver, and he recently left his job. And we was all worried that he's not going to find a, the perfect job. And he's landed on his feet. He's got a top top paid job. He's getting to go to all the football stadiums within the United Kingdom. He's a big Liverpool football fan. And it's like, how do you do it, Aaron? He says, I don't know, Matt. I just don't think. I just I just enjoy life. I smile. And then these things just land on my lap. And maybe he's got the similar thing. Maybe he's talking to, to, to somebody <laughs> you know, more far powerful than us, and he's getting all these messages. Whereas when I ask, because I'm in a negative space, maybe that's why negative right. things are happening. Maybe I need to put myself in a more positive role, and then more positive things may happen. Or because you're negative, you're actually blind to see the opportunities laid at your feet. You're not willing to accept it, kind of thing. So, well, don't you think that most people's lives are based on how they feel about themselves deep down inside? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I mean, that, that's what I try to help people understand is that um, if you can get to a place where you feel that you deserve to be loved and that you're not to blame for the things that happened to you and that didn't happen for you and you are willing to have the courage to heal those wounds, 
then uh, life has a tendency to become more abundant. Um, and look, I, I, I'm, I've had much, much hardship in my life. Having a relationship doesn't preclude pain because nobody gets a life without pain. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that notion is really important for people to understand is that it's not rainbows and unicorns, it's life. Yeah. And everybody's got a lot of stuff they have to deal with both on a positive and on a really tragic level. And if you can accept that, that that's part of life, it makes it a lot easier to be resilient in the face of the really difficult things that life brings us all. Um, so I don't want to give the idea that I walk around in a charming, you know, <laughs> pain-free life because that's not the case at all. Actually, I've had a lot of very serious physical problems and I've almost died three or four times. And, um, uh, you know, I don't get a life that's any less difficult than anybody else. It's just that my ability to be resilient uh, it helps to have a spiritual relationship to help with that. I was going to say, even well, even listening to you as well, I think what it is with you, you've got a, a really positive attitude towards life as well. So that's why, you know, you've gone through all these bad things as well. But the way that you manage it, see, a lot of us don't manage it like that. Like I certainly don't. I don't. I don't like myself. I don't feel worth worth anything. If I'm being absolutely honest, and that's something I've got to work on in my in my own self. But if if I've always thought it's how you deal with a situation like yourself. You've got a very, you have, you've got a very positive attitude around you. You've, you seem very happy. And you, you, like you said, you've gone through bad stuff yourself. You've gone through that, at, you know, such a young age at four, four and a half years old and then traveling the world, seeing that. But the way that you've, the, the way that you've um, sort of witnessed it in your own head, you've sort of changed it around. So to speak, like when you're on the surf, I'm, I'm chilling here. I'm having a great time. I'm listening to Sting in the Park. I mean, how cool is that? Starters, yeah. right? Right. And a lot of people find it difficult to see beyond the negative. It's always, it's sort of, like me, I carry it on my back. It's there. And I think a lot of people call it a chip on the shoulder or something like that. But I'm always looking for somebody that's ready to jump on me, ready to put me down, ready to say something negative towards me. I'm almost looking for it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I would love to change my mindset to be similar to that of yours. Yes, I've had bad stuff, but you know what? Life goes on. I've got to move on. I wish I could do that. Well, I, I have a secret I could tell you. If that, that might be helpful. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> uh, you know, you said I seem like a, in quotes, happy person. Yeah. Uh, again, I did a, a, done a number of episodes on the podcast about the concept of happiness. And one of the main things that I ask people to consider, especially because people come to see me and they say, I'm not a very happy person. I just want to be happy. And I will tell you that my immediate response is always, I can't help you. And they look at me like, I thought you were a therapist. Are you supposed to help me be happy? And my response is, well, first of all, there's no such thing as being happy. You cannot be a feeling. And people don't understand that we've been conditioned to believe that there's something wrong if we don't walk around happy. And there's no such thing as uh, being happy. You can feel happy, but you can't be a, f a feeling. And um, I think it's a terrible myth that has been uh, perpetuated on our society to make you feel ashamed of yourself if you're not a happy person. I think that what is really important for people to do is to strive for what I call neutrality, to just be in a place where you're okay, that you're feeling okay, that gives you the ability to create joyful experiences 
and it gives you the resilience to handle the difficulties that are going to be part of everybody's life. So I, I don't consider myself to be a happy person, but I do consider myself somebody who seeks joy as much as he can and tries to do the best in the face of adversity. But, I, I, but I'm not a happy person, and there is really no such thing. Now, I get there are some people who are a bit more enthusiastic about life than others, uh, but that still doesn't qualify as happiness. That just qualifies as somebody who probably wasn't as uh, um, <laughs> wasn't as tormented as others. And you know, genetically, some people are more uh, sort of extroverted than others. But yeah. if you can shift yourself away from the idea that there's something wrong with you because you're not happy, and understand that if you can just cruise through neutral, uh, you're doing a really good job. Yeah, that's what that's the gear I need. Neutral. <laughs> Wow, but that's yeah, just quite, that's it is an emotion, isn't it? No, I, I do get that. It's just an emotion, um, but it is hard to, to to get to that state. I find it extremely difficult. I mean, I've had a good day today. I've had a really good day. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I feel really, really upbeat today. Um, but yeah, trying to find that joy in life. I mean, it's looking in the mirror every day, and then you, you just look it back at yourself, and you just like, yes, you know what 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 are you doing to. And, and then you get fed up or you put yourself down because you've not gone out today. You've not gone out. But a lot of the times I was suffering with social anxiety as well. So I couldn't go out. And if I did go out, I'd end up having a panic attack because it's all in my head. I know I, I understand what causes it, but I can never work out. So I do a lot of, a lot of stuff on my own, like self-medicating. So I've got like a gratif gratification journal that I fill in day to day basis to try and find free things that I'm grateful for. And even that, I'm stumped. Like, what am I grateful for? Well, I've woke up. Okay, right. I'm grateful that I've, I've, I've woke. Uh, I'm grateful for the smell of the coffee in the morning. And I'm grateful in my job because I get to see the sunrise. Right. But they're the same three things every day. <laughs> Obviously, I'm grateful for being a dad to three beautiful children. That's, But that goes without saying. They're my life. Um, But yeah, I just wish I could, I could get to that stage. I think it'd be lovely. <laughs> Well, you know, again, Jermaine, you have, I'm sure you figured out by now I'm an incredibly biased person. <laughs> um, and my bias is really, truly, you have to be willing to face the trauma that you've suffered and heal it because whether you're consciously aware of it or not, it's always affecting you. Yeah. And it colors everything about how you live in the world and how uh, things affect you. And I really encourage people to find the courage to heal whatever needs to be healed because if you don't do that, it really uh, it's like having a lens over your over your eyes all the time that keeps you in a place of sometimes hypervigilance and deep fear and mistrust and um, uh, and then without realizing we often invite people into our lives that are a reflection of how we feel about ourselves. So if you're unfaithful to yourself, as an example, emotionally, then it's not unusual to have people come into your life that are not faithful to you. And you don't really realize that you're setting the tone by the way that you communicate with people on an unconscious level. Because why should somebody respect you if you don't respect yourself? Exactly, yeah. And I, and I do I do preach that quite a lot, but find it hard to practice it, so to speak. I try to. I do try, but there is have you noticed that you're getting more clients since social media would you say 
Um, you know, I would say that social media, well, I was never on social media in any way until I started my podcast because um, I don't think anybody cares what I had for breakfast and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in the world, in the ways of on social media, everybody shows their best life, which can ultimately make people looking at that. Feel bad of, about themselves. Yeah, feel bad about themselves because they're not doing these things. They're not having the glitz and the glam. And it can right. sometimes put other people down. So I didn't know if you had more clients coming up for help since right. the, the boom of social media, considering perhaps 20 years ago when it didn't exist. Well, so I think it's created a, a, an incredible amount of isolation and loneliness. Um, so I'm not a giant fan, uh, especially with teenagers and um, uh, and children, because I think it, it makes it so easy to not engage with other people. And that's a gigantic problem. Um, it, it's really unfortunate. Uh, actually, today we're releasing a uh, a podcast that we I interviewed a 15-year-old girl about her relationship to social media. And it's really fascinating. Next Sunday comes an episode with a young man, a 14-year-old, that I uh, interviewed about social media because I think it's like you're bringing up right now. It's a hugely important topic for parents and children uh, to come to terms with. I mean, it's evil people like me that invented all of the addictive qualities of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's teams of psychologists that, that – use all of their intelligence to try to be, help people become addicted uh, to the chemicals that get released in your brain when you hear a certain tone and when you see a certain, you know, a visual cue and all of that stuff. And, you know, sadly, there's a lot of really smart people that have no conscience about uh, creating addictive behavior and uh, they get paid quite well and it works really well. Yeah, well, that's, that's addiction for you, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a very sellable market, if you like, but but no, I, I never had the internet growing up. We weren't, it didn't come out until I left high school. So to speak. I left high school in 2001. Right. And since the, if, if we were to act like my peers at my age, 37 year olds now, if they were to act like some of the youngers today, we would have been badly beaten and bullied at school. Right. Like if you were to take a picture of yourself, like a selfie that people do, I see it outside my house where you've got people with the phone hand right up in the air taking pictures of themselves or dancing. I'm like, in my day, we weren't allowed to do that. We weren't allowed to express ourselves like that, which is great now. I, I love it. I love the fact that people are now able to do what they want when the one they've got that that openness, they can be who they are and grow into whatever. And, you know, nowadays you've got social media stars, YouTube blowing up, becoming millionaires overnight, which is great. But if we did that, it was, I don't know, it was obviously just a different era, whereas today's day, we look at that, and it's like narcissistic behavior. Right. Because they're just showing off about themselves. And it, it doesn't seem like there's any empathy nowadays. Like, I wouldn't park my car outside somebody's house. I just wouldn't. But I have people parking outside my house every day. And I'm just like, do you not have any kind of respect for anybody's other than you? Is it just your world? Is it you and your world? <laughs> do you not realize that there's other people in this world? And you do, you see it on, on YouTube. I watch a lot of the American or British um, car rage, road rage. Right. And that's my spot. Well, why is it your spot? Is your name on it? That kind, <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of entitlement, which never used to be here. I don't remember ever seeing entitlement until the last five years. I don't know what's happened. <laughs> it's gone well, weird. Well, I, I think that what happened – 
at least in America, uh, and I, I, I will be political just for a brief moment, uh, the previous president that we had was a incredibly mentally ill, malignant narcissist, and he encouraged everybody to hurt people that didn't agree with him. And that is very appealing to most of us because we have a four-year-old inside of us that loves revenge. Yeah. So if you're being encouraged by the most important, theoretically important people in our world to hurt people that don't agree with us, it sets the tone for really bad behavior. So again, I know I'm a bit off the off the top off the subject, but um, it really depends on the uh, uh, you know how we, how you're being encouraged to handle the way that you feel, and if you're being encouraged to hurt other people to make yourself feel better, then you know that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's quite bad. So I think Roger wants to come in and ask a question. Go ahead, Roger. Yeah. Please, Roger. I did. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, a couple different things. I'm going to back us up just a little bit, although it's very much related, is um, one, Dana, you talked about, like, working on healing injury yeah. or self-perception. And along those lines, you also, in the last five minutes or so, the two of you talked about um, <clears throat> how how other people treat you and how you accept being treated. and. Dana, you don't know much about my history. Jermaine and I have talked about it. Jermaine and I have talked about both of us come from families with neglect and abuse. Right. And part of that, and I've worked with therapists that I've seen to one, one actually I, ha, I had a really big blow up with a therapist that I see when he said, well, the next thing that we need to work on is you have to love yourself before others can love you. And first of all, love is a trigger word for me from my childhood because my parents, if they did something neglectful or abusive, and I actually took a a justified emotional response to that, which would be to withdraw, shut down, be angry, or be sad, um, their their response, they would never apologize, but they would say, I love you. Yeah. I was required to say, I love you too. And I call this the I love you, I love you too contract. And right. what that meant was stop acting the way you are, pretend what I did never happened, and never mention it again. And that is the that is the way I was taught to submit to people as a child. Right. So the idea of even like setting boundaries, like and I've been learning this over the last five years or so, but for people who grew up with abuse, with neglect, particularly in their childhood, or have been in a long-term relationship with that, like we don't even, particularly in childhood, we don't even understand what boundaries we could set for ourselves. So right. kind of bringing this, bringing a few things, that the whole idea of setting boundaries, the idea of how we allow ourselves to be treated, connected to like how do we heal that and actually having to learn like, wait, you know, like, I mean, a whole lot of us that grew up in abusive households, the idea to actually say, no, I don't want to do that is foreign. I remember in my early adulthood, like, wait, you mean I can say no? Yeah. So I'll stop and let you guys talk about that. Um, Roger, you're, you're bringing up a really good point, And that is um, that you were made to feel horribly ashamed of yourself for reacting to mistreatment. And um 
I think it's real that the concept of shame is a really, really important ingredient in the healing process because, um, well, first of all, let me give you a, just a brief description of the difference between shame and guilt because, um, most people confuse the two. Uh, guilt is, is about something that you did or didn't do that somebody might take exception to. And that, you know, when you're being raised, guilt is healthy because it helps you develop a conscience. But shame is much more personal. It doesn't necessarily have to do with what you did or didn't do. It has to do with you as a person and what kind of value that you have. So if you react to being abused and your family makes you feel ashamed of your reaction, then you're going to shut down and feel really scared and alone and feel like you're not loved, which you're not being treated with love. And then it's going to become very confusing because um, the more shame that you feel, the more at war you become with yourself. And the more that you learn to hate yourself because you're being told that you're, that it's not about your behavior, but that you're a bad person. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So part and, of what I try to help people do is recognize how much shame they're carrying inside their body. That's powerful. Yeah. And then, yeah, how to heal, how to even to recognize that, because when it is the way you've always seen the world and always seen yourself to even realize that you're seeing it that way. And then if you want to talk some about like how to identify and then how to heal. Well, I do a lot of hypnosis with people because um, when you're being traumatized, you go into a trance in order to cope with what's happening to you. Um, and that's a natural phenomenon that all people go through when they're dealing with things that are beyond their ability to handle. And part of what happens when you're experiencing that kind of shame and abuse is that you shut down and you don't really feel what's happening to you. So what hypnosis does is recreate the electrical chemical state that you were in when you were being traumatized, which gives you direct access to what you were feeling at that time. So part of what I do with people is to help them really recognize how much shame they carry by how much, by, by the way that they felt when the things that were happening to them happened to them and the way they felt when they were being neglected. So the process is not necessarily an intellectual one. It's a very deep body feeling of, uh, what happens to you when, when you have to shut your feelings down. So, um, once a person starts to really look at things, not from a symptomatic perspective, but to realize that their symptoms are, again, a reflection of deeper issues, it, it's much easier to start to recognize when you feel shame because, um, Roger, you probably remember this. Do you remember Nickelodeon back in the olden days when they would slime people with that green slime? Only a little bit. I'm a little bit older than Nickelodeon. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, part of what they would do on the show was pour green slime on people's heads when they were, you know, when they lost or they didn't do something, you know, and it's just a representation of what shame feels like. It's like being slimed yes. by somebody. Um, Absolutely. And it's a very easily recognized feeling once you start to pay attention to how much of it you carry inside your body because it feels really terrible. And it's really one of the main yeah. sources of self-hate and self-loathing. And once you become aware that that's what's there, then it becomes a lot easier to, to start to release it and recognize that you, you, you've been blaming yourself and you're not the problem. 
It's what happened to you and what happened when what didn't happen for you that have created most of your suffering in your life. Oh. Yeah. So go, I, going that off that, how would you heal? How would What's you work that? on healing? Is there any like sort of tips on to help with people that, that have gone through that? Is there any like little things that you could do, like create new habits or, or go through new things? You know, Jermaine, I, again, I'm an incredibly biased person in that <laughs> because all of your suffering, or at least 98% of it, has happened at the hands of another person, that I think that the healing also needs to occur in the hands of another person. Right. Because so, Roger, what was you saying? I'm sorry? So I think Roger was trying to say something. I didn't know what he said. Well, what, I, I think um, it's really – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Roger. No. Uh, well, I, I was, what just went through my head as you said that is that's brilliant and powerful and that the, that the healing has to come from others too. And, and they, that others have to be a part of it. That makes so much sense and, and is powerful. And, and I have some really wonderful therapists in my life and they have played a really huge role in that. Right. And, uh, that. And the other piece, the other piece that was, I just stopped a, a minute ago was th- your, your statement about shutting down your emotions when you're being shamed, when you're being blamed, when, when something traumatic, particularly as a child, but also can happen in adult relationships. Um, when, when a person is, when, and I'll just speak for myself. It was in my late forties that as I was getting good therapy and had finally been figured out how much trauma was in my childhood. And I, I've had so many times I wanted to jump in here, but I, I, re, I held myself back. So you took a talk, but I'm going to throw something, a couple pieces out. Um, the, one of the, I've done a couple, I've done presentation about this and there was very little physical contact abuse in my childhood, but there right. was definitely physical violence without hitting people and right and so one of what the present a title that i use and will probably write a book about this and have done a presentation is called no bruises on the outside right and so i could completely relate to what you were talking about dana but the piece i wanted to say right now was it was um early 2015, 16, somewhere in there, that therapist I was working with, I explained to him that when, that that my father did a lot of, my father was a very raging and violent person. And that I realized when somebody is angry, I shut off, I disconnect, I emotionally dissociate from my emotions and start trying to figure out how to appease them. And exactly. I called, I called this submit and appease. And yes. we started to talk about it and explore it. And it fits it. And if someone hasn't, and I really love your piece where you said people go into a trance. Cause I was like, that is such a great word for this. Right. That when we're scared. At, and so I was explaining this and exploring this with the therapist of the, the shutting down. And but staying socially engaged because with my father and Jermaine and I have talked about this is that um, I grew up on a farm and there was work to do and I had to keep working with my dad as he's in a rage 
And and if if he's he's like, wipe that smirk off your face or don't be crying or don't wipe that look off your face or whatever. So I had to literally not have the facial expressions that go with the emotions I was feeling. I had to not have them show on my face. Right. The only way to do that is to disconnect from the emotions that involuntarily create those expressions while I had to continue to work with him. So this whole, you're, you're talking about something I've, I, I can identify too. And I, hopefully as we talk about it, more people can learn to identify it in themselves because it doesn't get talked about that much. It's starting to get talked about more. Pete Walker in his book, um, comp- about complex PTSD is to calling it the fawn response. I call it submit and appease, but that whole disconnecting from your emotions and then simultaneously staying engaged is a really complicated and complex thing that I learned to do before I have memories. Right. Um, do you mind if I uh, respond to what please, you're saying, Roger? Go ahead. Um, I'm done. No, 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 please. What you're speaking about is really important. A couple of things I want to mention. Um, when I'm working with somebody, uh, just sort of instinctually, I look at their breathing patterns because uh, whenever somebody is talking about trauma, they hold their breath. Mm. So your breathing, um, the way you breathe is really important to pay attention to because if you find yourself holding your breath a lot, it means that you're carrying trauma inside your body, period. Um, and the other thing that's really important is that when you look at a person's eyes, you can see them go into a trance because they glaze, their eyes glaze over and they look like they're still there, but not really, if that makes any kind of sense. That makes a hundred percent sense to me. Did you want to say more other as I'll respond? Uh, just a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, Please. Uh, the other failure of therapy, and I'm not saying that it's failed you, is that it's an intellectual exercise and it doesn't really help people go deeply enough into their feelings to be able to release the trauma on a body feeling level. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times when I see people that have been to a bunch of other therapists, it's been helpful and the person has gained a lot of insight, but nothing has really changed in terms of how they feel because all the insight in the world is not going to help you get to a deep enough level to release, like you're describing, the feelings that you've been carrying around forever that need to be uh, released from your body. Um, I, I had an experience once about 10 years ago where this mom brought her twin daughters into my office. They're about 16 years old. And I don't know why, but they were diehard Laker fans and the Lakers were losing. And they were so distraught that they couldn't function. And I thought, this is not normal, right? <laughs> Who cares about the Lakers that much, right? <laughs> so yeah. mom is sitting in the middle of my sofa and there's uh, a twin on each side of her. And I, I say to her, um, you know, is there something that might have happened when these girls were younger that somehow is being triggered by um, – their their symptom of the Lakers being uh, a losing team. And the mom describes a situation where uh, her ex-husband was bipolar and an alcoholic, and but he was a professor at Berkeley, and so he was quite famous and, and well-known and, uh, you know, had a lot of prestige in the community. Anyway, he was estranged from the family, and one day he broke into the house with an axe and one of the twins woke up as he was raising the axe to kill his wife. 
And another, the other twin woke up and called the police. The police came and they actually killed the father in front of the children, which is, you know, so horrific. Uh, none of, yeah. nobody in the family dealt with the situation. What they did was pack up the family and move to Santa Barbara from Berkeley. As soon as the mom started talking about all this, both of the twins uh, fell over onto their mother's side and went into the, probably one of the deepest trances I've ever seen inside my office happened spontaneously. And their body had such an extreme reaction to what happened to them that they actually went into an altered state in order to not hear what their mother was saying. So that's a really dramatic example, but yeah. all of this stuff lives inside of a person. And um, if you don't deal with it, it's going to come looking for you at some point in your life. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but please go ahead. Uh, Though the, that's a, yeah, I, I really appreciate the example because it's, it's those extreme examples that help people see what we're talking about. And the, and, and then maybe be able to apply it to look at themselves. And, um, the, the other piece I was going to say was that, yes, one of the therapists I was seeing, once I was able to explain the submit and appease response, and I, and I told him, I said, this happens in sessions with you. Um, and you don't know it. And he said, well, how would I identify it in you? And, mm -hmm. and I said, Okay, let me think about that. I said, well, I'm a fairly expressive guy. And when, because from before I have memories, I learned to turn off, to disconnect from my emotions while simultaneously staying socially engaged. I said, what you would look for in me is that although I stay socially engaged and I continue the conversation with you, I will become less expressive. You know, what you're saying is really important and also quite sad because um, oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I think that no, any competent therapist, I think any competent therapist should be able to read you well enough to see the subtle changes in your body and in your eyes and in your breathing patterns and the whole way you carry yourself. And that you should not have to explain that to a professional person that's working with you. And I'm really sorry. I mean, I don't mean to speak badly, but. This is why it's really sometimes hard to find somebody who can really help you because people are looking for pathology rather than um, trying to really see you for who you are and to look at the way that you cope with the trauma that you carry inside your body. That that all makes sense. And I will – it was interesting to me when you said, you know, there, there are a lot of bad therapists out there, and, and I agree. Um, thankfully, I've only had one who I would qualify as bad and destructive. The others, I would say, are could use more training. And and you've been through the, the training I have not, or you've been through some parts of it, and you've done a whole lot beyond the typical therapist training. Because is am I correct that the typical master's level and maybe even Ph.D., therapist, psychology, social work training, those courses don't go into a lot of the body recognition stuff that you're talking about. Well, that's definitely true. I will tell you that um, I have trained probably five, six, seven therapists in the course of my career. Um, mm -hmm. 
I know that the typical training designs you to become licensed by whatever body licensed you, whether, I mean, here it's in California. They don't care about any of what I'm talking about. All they care about is diagnosis, treatment planning, and, uh, uh, you, you know, all of that stuff that I find abhorrent and not useful. Uh, but I totally understand that, you know, what they want, they, they want to be able to qualify it through experimentation. Um, and I don't think that psychology or being a therapist is a scientific pursuit. I think it's a, an art. And I'm really sorry that it's not looked at as, as an, you know, something that you have to really be clear about within yourself. And, um, maybe I just take myself for granted. I don't know. But I, I, it, it should be obvious to anybody that's working with you that they can read you well enough. Cause I'm not trained in any of this. I know I, I have never gone to a seminar or anything that's been useful since I got my license in 1987. So all of this comes as a result of experience. And I truly believe it's also a result of my spiritual connection that, um, I just try to be as connected to whoever I'm with as possible instead of going into my head and trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And that, and that is, it, it completely makes sense. And that is, that is, you are an exceptional therapist. You're an, a highly skilled, exceptional therapist. I compliment you because getting into that level of body work is, is body reading. You learned it however you learned it. And, and, and I understand it. I understand it from a very different perspective is there was an, an, I have to look to whatever I can find to help myself and is plus therapy and therapist has been, therapy has been helpful, but yes, it, you're talking about like the next level of therapy beyond talk therapy, which I makes so much sense and is so much helpful. There is from, from the book, the body keeps the score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He mentions a small research project that was done in Madison, Wisconsin at UW Madison, Wisconsin, where they took eight year old kids. It was a small study, but they, half of them had lived with abuse. Half of them had not. And they exposed, they showed them pictures from, from neutral face, to angry face and the the eight-year-olds who had not lived with abuse if i remember correctly they identified anger on the face at like fours and fives and the children who had learned um who'd lived with abuse which i relate to identified anger at the micro expression level of ones and twos and maybe three and so i read that facial expression subconsciously right and and I respond to it and it, and typically I'm like be getting cautious and, and cautious of people because of, because I see a little bit of anger that sometimes people aren't even aware of. And, um, there's a TV show that was done that was incredibly. So I've looked, I've, I've done talk therapy and I've looked for as many things as I could find and afford to, to augment that. And one of them is a TV show called lie to me which is a it's a very interesting tv show about reading micro expressions and it's a guy who's called a human lie detector and it's taken from the work who i can't remember the guy from the 60s who started figuring out micro expressions but for and in that show they eventually have one of the characters who is a they call a natural reader of micro expressions 
and they eventually reveal that she had an abusive childhood. Right. That show validated my life and my reading of microexpressions and taught me more about what I do on that than anything else that I've, that I've had teach me about it. Well, you know, Roger, uh, being hypervigilant is what you're describing, which is one of the yeah. main characteristics of post-traumatic stress. So uh, you're absolutely right in describing it the way that you are, because if you're not hypervigilant, there's something really wrong with you. Yep. I, I thank you. I'm going to stop so that you and Jermaine can wrap this up. Okay. Thank you, Dan. You're quite welcome. Because I'd like to go back as well and just say, I echo what Roger said as well about um, how commendable you are as a, as in the position that you're in and you can read the body like that as well. So I've, I've not seen any therapists like my therapist have been online uh, through the NHS and you get this help through, through the phone and it's on an app. And then obviously you speak to each of our on a day, well, one was once a week through, through the NHS, national health service. Um, But a lot of the times they don't see you face to face. They didn't know my body language. All they knew was what I was typing, but who knows that I was typing the right thing. Who knows that I was actually telling the right thing without seeing my body language. You don't know if I'm telling the truth or not. So you do need somebody that can look down and say, be truthful to yourself. How are you actually feeling? What's actually going on? So to speak. Because a lot of people can be in denial. I find like, no, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm all right. You know what I mean? But then you might be able to tell different. Say, no, they're not all right. They need, they need to realize what they're going through at the moment and then learn how to, how to cope with that or how to manage that or what everybody wants is how to get better from that. So, so yeah, I commend you for that. And you obviously know your, your field very, very well. <laughs> well, you're very um, kind. Well, it's just what's coming across. So I, I, I didn't expect this, this level, so to speak. And the credentials coming across is absolutely amazing. Um, if you don't mind me asking Dan, what Please. was, have, what's the worst case you've ever had to deal with? Like the story behind it, or if you oh, can speak I, about it, is there, is there one that sticks in your mind? Uh, do you, uh, it depends on how graphic you want me to be, uh, because I don't want, I don't want to sort of overwhelm anybody, but I, uh, it really depends on how graphic that you want me to be in the, in the description. Well, it's honesty's best policy on this podcast. So, you know, there'll be a content warning anyway, right at the start of this podcast I'll put on there. So okay. Okay. You, you can be as, as you like, there will be a, like I say, a content warning and a disclaimer on here. So if people listen to that, they, they can either listen or, or not. So, well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say that this is the worst, but the one that I was speaking about, a little bit earlier, I would say that the, the the most disturbing situation that I've encountered was a was a uh, sociopathic fourteen year old who again started raping and uh, uh, both his two year old and four year old uh, siblings, and it wasn't just horrible sexual abuse; it was also um, the most sadistic psychological stuff you could ever imagine. It was so disturbing to hear this, the way that this man uh, tortured his siblings. And it was also incredibly disturbing how the parents didn't notice that this was happening to their children. They were so checked out in their own emotional world 
Uh, and I think it's because the mom was horribly abused as a child also, and so I don't think she was very connected to her own self. But it wasn't until this went on for four or five years before they had the courage to tell their dad. And the saddest thing is that this young man's punishment was being sent to a really elite private school because they had so much money that they were able to avoid any sort of legal uh, situation for this young man. So they sent him off to boarding school. When I met him, he was in his 40s and uh, uh, had been married and had two daughters. And I think that he actually did the same thing to his daughters as he did to his siblings, which was really, really sad. Because um, it was, and this is the way it works, right? If you don't deal with this stuff, it just gets passed on from one generation to the next. Shouldn't have so, been able but, to have kids, in my opinion. It's what? You shouldn't have been allowed to even have children, in my opinion. Well, sadly, his parents don't support him, and, and, and they don't really believe that he was, that what he did was as bad as it was. So is, is this guy still walking free, I take it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a woman I, I met a, a little while ago whose father started to rape her when she was um, four years old, did it all the way till she was a teenager. She got pregnant twice and miscarried. And the mom still lives with the father and can't understand why his daughter doesn't want to come home because he's not, in quotes, doing it anymore. <sighs> so, again, I know this is sadly graphic, but you would be surprised how many people blame their children or uh, look at it like, okay, it happened in the past, but it's not that big of a deal. Um, I've only in my career had about five or six parents who were willing to come and take responsibility and really do the best they could to try to help their kids get over what it is that happened. It's such the, um, it's not the norm, sadly enough. And again, I work with a population of people that are not indigent it's not what you would expect you know i i the, this community i live in is extremely wealthy and um this stuff happens it doesn't matter what the person's uh, demographic is it's it's just so hurtful to know that, that that kind of stuff goes on i don't understand why one you do it to your own flesh and blood two to do it to your siblings which is just sick and weird and three if it happened oh. It's not so, for life and shouldn't be allowed to even have life, shouldn't be allowed to get married, shouldn't be allowed to live a life. Why would, Why should that person be allowed to go about living his life thinking, yeah, I'm great? Just ruined and damaged somebody's life. You Who know, the hell are you? I think that money buys freedom for a lot of people. Yeah, um, money means nothing. Money doesn't pay for a new brain. It doesn't pay to have your, your brain re, re um, in, in like a PC or whatever, reconnected to forget those things. Even though, like you've said, some people can forget like you did, but it still lives within you. And it's just, I couldn't live with myself. In my own opinion, if, if that was me, I was doing them things. I couldn't live with myself. I would have been gone a long time ago. Well, way, but you're a good man who has a, who has a conscience and doesn't use excuses for, you know, his behavior. But I would say that most people blame the world for their problems. And I'm sorry to be cynical, but um, that's what we're taught, that, you know, it's not me, it's the world. Yeah, but to do stuff like that, uh, uh, I feel sorry for the for the victims. Uh, they don't need to, they weren't born in this world to have that happen to them. And it's, it's so unfortunate that it is happening. I didn't realize how much it was happening until speaking with you. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> I hope you don't regret this conversation because no, I try no. I try to be as honest and as forthright as I can because people are in such denial 
And nobody wants to believe that this can happen. And all I hear about all day long is how often this happens. And again, I think it's really important for people who have been neglected and abused to do everything they can to redeem themselves and recognize they didn't do anything to cause it. It's not their fault. It's really normal to freeze when you're being preyed upon just because you didn't fight or yell or run away. That's completely normal. And people feel so ashamed of the fact that they, in quotes, allowed this stuff to happen. And um, they didn't allow it. They were frozen. They were terrified. So, um, and and I'm not just talking about sexual abuse because the same thing happens with physical and emotional abuse. Abuse and neglect. It, 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 we are really sturdy people and vulnerable at the same time. Yeah, it's like a controlling thing. But no, I don't. I don't um, regret this conversation. You tell because you're highlighting an issue that's actual. That's actually real. And there's obviously going to be people in the United Kingdom where this is happening as well. And so for it to be on this podcast, like I say, it's allowing people to realise we can talk about it. Absolutely. So you bringing it up, there is no regrets. Obviously, it's hard to listen to. It is a hard listen because I'm a dad myself and, right. you know, I've, I've got three little beautiful babies. But you've highlighted an actual issue that was a, that was around. And a lot of people are quite scared as well to bring those issues up uh, as deep as they are. But, you've, but you've, you know, you, you've highlighted it. Hopefully, people listening to this, if there is anybody out there that is a victim to this kind of thing that's gone on, then reach out. Speak speak out. Get, get as much help as you can and realize you don't have to put up with it. And you know, and get the person some help, get him locked up, get him, get him help. Or whether it's a female or a mother doing it. Cause I've heard, I have heard stories where the mothers do it as well to the, to the children. And it, it's, for me, it's just shocks me. That's all it is. It's took my breath away a little bit from hearing those. Are they the only types of, of trauma cases that you deal with? Or was there different, totally off, off, off that kind of subject? Is there anything else or? Well, I mean, I, I see as much uh, a physical and uh, emotional abuse and neglect um, as I do sexual abuse. Um, I, I, if I can be self-promotional just for a brief moment, anybody yeah, who sure. has questions, please reach out to me. Um, you can you can reach out to me through my podcast. It's fearmeoutpodcast.com. Uh, is a great way to get a hold of me. I am open to any questions, any feedback. Um, I put out a lot of episodes uh, where the people that I'm not the people necessarily that I've described here, but a lot of them, as my guests have been people that have overcome the most unimaginable trauma and difficulties that you can imagine. And they talk about their journey and what it took to get to a better place. And I think it's very inspirational. And my whole goal in life is to help as many people as I can before I, before I'm not here anymore, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Well, to be fair, your podcast will still be here helping others <laughs> as well. So, so that's a good thing. Um, I'm definitely going to put your credentials up in the show notes anyway of today's show so people can reach out and get to you and, and listen to your podcast as well. You're so um, kind. If there is any chance as well, if there is any of your previous guests that would like to come on here and, 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 and let the world know and well, let the UK listeners know as well about their story and how they, how they come over it. I mean, you could come on as a guest with them as well um that would be great as well i believe oh you're very kind i i mean there's a, a number of people i know that would probably be quite interested in it, so i will put them in touch with you yeah definitely 
Oh, so that, that's quite deep. So where are you now then? Where, where are you in your life now? How's life for, for Dana right now? Well, I would say that I have the best life a person could ever have in terms of my relationships with other people. I have a, a wife that I've been married to for 43 years, and uh, I have a couple of adult children and a couple of grandchildren and a great group of friends and a really lovely professional life. I will tell you that, unfortunately, I have a lot of physical uh, problems that are I live in chronic pain and I have heart issues and all kinds of other things, but I just do the best I can to enjoy my life as much as I can while I'm still here. So do you, do you still go surfing or anything like that? Or You know, that's the biggest heartbreak I think I've probably ever suffered in that sort of part of life because I'm physically at a point where the only thing I can do now is walk and i got to be super careful uh, yeah. not to fall down. <laughs> because, oh, I've had seven spine surgeries and open heart surgery and a couple strokes and all kinds of other stuff. But, you know, I'm I'm not ready to go yet, so I'm a fighter. I'm going to keep going. I was going to say that the, the faith is definitely strong with you to go through all of that and still be here to tell the story. That There's definitely something else out there, isn't there? <laughs> well, I, I just feel like I'm not done yet, if that makes sense. <laughs> No, that, that, that's it. And like you say, you bring in this, you know, your podcast out as well, Fear Me Out, is is amazing. So you've, you've obviously got quite a lot to say. You're so good. a lot of um, guests that come onto your show as well. Like I said, I've got up to about episode five now because I like to go right back and listen right from the start. Um, I will definitely um, put your stuff in the show notes anyway. I'll put it on the, the Facebook page. Um, yeah, my new Facebook page because <laughs> the old one was a bit. Yeah. It didn't, yeah, you know, it didn't work properly. I didn't get it all, all all lined up. Whereas now it is actually called My Life, My Journey podcast, so that works. Um, and definitely, I'd love you to come back on at some point as well, if if that's something you, you'd be interested with, whether it's yourself coming on or you with with one of your guests, if you'd like to bring them onto the show, and and vice versa. If you ever need me or would like me to come onto your show, and you can you can ask me questions about what I went through. I'm more than more than willing to to jump on as well and tell my story to you. Well, that sounds really good. Both you guys have been incredibly gracious and kind, and um, I'm just quite appreciative. Yeah, I've found a special person with Roger. He's very. We, we were saying this before. Roger's very articulate with language. He's very good with words and gets things out. Whereas me, I'm I'm common. I don't know <laughs> how to speak about things properly. <laughs> You know, I don't know how to get get the words out that I need to get out, but Roger's quite good at helping me navigate that, and that's why Roger's here now as well because he can help me along with questions, if you know what I mean. <laughs> because my past was quite—it's not—it's not great, but I'm past that. My dad's in America, I'm here, so he's living out there. I'm back here, and I'm quite happy with that situation. Um. But yeah, maybe I need to face it. But that's, I mean, you speaking today, believe it or not, and even me, and I find this weird. I don't know if you if, if you understand this, but me doing this podcast originally was for myself to get things off my chest, to speak. Right. Sure. Because once I let all of those thoughts and emotions out on something, it's almost like I'm sit, speaking with a therapist. The podcast <laughs> is my therapist. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm sorry to laugh, but yes. Yeah. No, no, you can laugh because that's how I do. I, I laugh. I, I mean, so most of the time I laugh nervously to think, have I said the right thing there? Have I got my language right? Or, <laughs> but no, this for me is my is my little escape. It's someone to talk to. It's someone to get it out because I'm a truck driver. It's a very lonely job. I'm doing twelve hours for to up to fifteen hours a day on my own, and thoughts are constantly in your head. 
things are constantly reminding you of past, whether it's a lot for me, it smells. If I smell something, it brings me back to that moment in time when I smelt it. Or if a song was to come on, it would bring me back to that bad moment. So a lot of the time I avoid smells, songs and stuff like that. Right. But it's trying to work through it and understand why is it? Why can't I no longer enjoy that smell? Because I should be able to. Because at the time I perhaps loved it. I think that if you're willing to look at it slightly differently, which is uh, um, not what's wrong with me and I should be able, but what is this trying to tell me about myself that I need to come to terms with? Because that's a much more sort of compassionate way of approaching healing. Ah. See, I've never thought of that before. I've never actually thought about seeing it that way. Because it's obviously, see, what you're saying is that's your own body telling you that there's an issue. You yeah. need to now go and explore that. And and not to shame yourself because there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a crazy person. You wouldn't have those reactions for no reason. Yeah. I've never looked at it that way. Um, most, most people don't, Jermaine. <laughs> most people <laughs> would take issue and criticize themselves. Yeah, yeah that's what I do quite a lot of times. I always think I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not good enough for this world. That's that's what always goes through my mind. I'm always like, uh, why am I like this? Why am I not happy? Is I know you said yourself you're biased about things like that, but I just want to get Roger's point of view on that. What you what you just picked up on there. So this is actually a perfect demonstration of what I brought up before. Is and and Dana, your your point is spot on, and I love that you said it. Is Jermaine, you're you're beating yourself up. Because you're having a memory triggered by a smell or a song of something that happened to you earlier in your life that I think you're probably feeling shame about. And you don't even realize, like, you're feeling bad and beating yourself up, but someone else did something bad to you that you're feeling bad about and you're still beating yourself up. And thanks to Dana, you're like, he's now helped point it out to you, like, if, so, if something it's triggering a memory of somebody doing you wrong, who was, who was older and who was supposed to be protecting you and you're still feeling the shame and embarrassment about that. But really it's like, Hey, here's something for you to explore and like yeah. to figure out. And I, 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 I'm flabbergasted. I'll tell you what, that's a good word, isn't it, Roger? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am absolutely flabbergasted at this comment because I didn't expect, I wasn't, I didn't expect you to be as clever as this. And not, not that I was doubting or judging or anything like that. It's because I've never, the only people I've dealt with in your area, like I said, were online. And to hear you actually speak empathetically and understand and point out things, it's been amazing because I never would have thought of thinking outside the box like that. I never would have thought every time I get a feeling, I always feel like it's self. Like I was telling this to Roger the other week, I, I sort of feel like I trigger myself. But you know, uh, Jermaine, if I can interrupt you just for a moment, I yeah. tell people all the time, if you were held accountable for the way you talk to yourself, the way you treat yourself, you'd be in jail for assault. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. There's been many a times when I've been driving around with tears down my face and even feeling embarrassed by that. But you know what? You're really refreshing. Really, really refreshing, and you've made me start to question myself a little bit. And hopefully, that's done the same to the listeners as well. Maybe they they've just heard what you've just said, and that was like an epiphany. Like, wow, that's 
that is priceless bit of information for me, really, <laughs> to be fair. Well, you know what? I feel like I'm an incredibly blessed person despite all the <laughs> hardship I've had to deal with. And I again, I just want to help people as much as I can before I can't. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's humbling. It really is humbling to hear because, you know, I'm, I mean, I've not had any on this show yet. Um, but a lot, when you, when you speak to some people, some people are so far full of themselves that it's hard to get the message out properly. Whereas you are so, you've come across so humble. You've not been judgmental whatsoever. You've been very open and honest about the, the issues that you've gone through. You've been open and honest about the patients that you've saw and what they've gone through. And you've also backing it up with, with education. And that to me speaks volumes to you as a person. You're obviously doing something really good there. You've, you've, um, you've had a great chat with Roger there as well. And Roger's been able to, to come across, like I said, he's very articulate with word and language. So he sounds like a professional where <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best to get the words out. But just for you to identify something like that, that I've been killing myself for years trying to work out that. You know, well, I'm glad I was of service. I, I do not see myself as, you know, being an important person. I just have trouble with that, but I do really love to help people. It feels really good. Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You're way too Ooh. kind. Now you're, now you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to speak to yourself about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go yell at myself in the mirror when we finish. <laughs> yeah i've got to learn to accept it if That's someone right. says a good thing about me i've got to yeah. learn to accept it <laughs> yeah well, wow. no that, that's absolutely brilliant um do you want to shout out your credentials again dana we're going to come to the end of this show for today uh, well, if you want to shout out where people can reach out to you connect to you and or in, in your podcast as well definitely where people can go and go ahead and listen to it well, my name again is Dana Saperstein. You can either reach me at danasaperstein at gmail.com or at fearmeoutpodcast.com. And okay. I'm open to any questions or any feedback, uh, whatever, because I'm just trying to do the best I can. Sorted. And Saperstein, for anybody out there that doesn't know how to spell it, it's S for Sierra, A for Alpha, P for Papa, E for Echo, Romeo for R, Sierra for S, Tango for T, Echo, India, and November. Well, Thank hopefully everyone you. can get across to that. Are you on Facebook as well? Uh, I'm on Facebook and um, Fear Me Out. Fear Me Out. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't have a personal Facebook account because, again, I don't think anybody cares what I had for breakfast. Plus, I don't want to anyway. So... <laughs> Well, to be fair, to go through all of what you've gone through, I'd love to know what you have for breakfast because I think I should start eating it as well. <laughs> right, that's goodbye from me. Um, Roger, do you want to say goodbye? Yes, goodbye, everybody. And yes, thank you, Dana, for, for all that you shared today. A pleasure to meet both of you guys. So, yes. And we'll get you locked in for another episode as well, buddy. Anytime. Thank you very much. Right, guys, see you all in the next one. Anyway, guys, that brings us to the end of today's episode, and I thank you very much for joining me in today's show. If you have enjoyed today's show, then please share, rate, and review. And if you wish to connect with me, then please do so by connecting to my Instagram page. Just search my life underscore my journey podcast. 
Also, if you would like to come on the show, then please send me a message to the IG page with a description of the issue you currently have or have already been through. Remember guys, our stories may just help somebody that is suffering silence right now. Until then, have a great day and see you all next time.